0: Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the death penalty in America. Many Americans of a certain age remember when the death penalty was one of the most fraught and divisive issues in our country. In fact, it was the wedge issue that most defined the presidential election of 1988. Some of the biggest political headlines in the year 2000 were generated by the Republican governor of Illinois deciding to halt all executions. And the last decade has seen controversy over the method of executions, with pharmaceutical companies unwilling to supply the chemicals used in lethal injections. But today, we may be approaching a new era of the death penalty in America. Executions have fallen. Public interest is waning. And when was the last time you saw the death penalty discussed as a major issue in a political campaign? To help us understand where we've been, where we are now, and where we may be going on the death penalty in America, we're very pleased to have Maurice Shema, who's a staff writer and the author of... Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, which won the 2019 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Book Award. That's a mouthful, but it's worth saying. He is a staff writer for the Marshall Project. His work has been published by The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and most recently, The New York Times. He's a former Fulbright Fellow. He's an extremely intelligent guy. He helps organize, and I love this, the Insider Prize, which is a contest for incarcerated writers, which is sponsored by the magazine American Short fiction. His recent article for the New York Times was titled, The Supreme Court Let the Death Penalty Flourish. Now, Americans are ending it themselves. He's here to tell us all about it. Maurice, welcome to Great Ideas. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. It it is great to have you. I have to tell you that this is kind of a personal issue for me. Every time I had an opportunity during my schooling to get into a debate on a public issue, I chose the death penalty. It didn't always go well. I I lost some of those (laughs) debates. And this is an issue that I've been following closely for some time throughout my, my professional and academic career. And it has evolved a great deal during that time. Maybe, you know, you start the story 50 years ago in your New York Times piece. But I wonder if we could Go back even a little bit further and help set the context that led up to that time frame. Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the death penalty in America leading up to the early 1970s?
1: Sure. So the death penalty is something that has existed in most human societies throughout history. Certainly the American death penalty, as we understand it, is something we inherited from England um, We've always, as a country, been somewhat ambivalent about it. You know, there were times where maybe our laws were extremely harsh in the 1700s, 1800s, but that didn't mean that we actually executed every single person who committed a particular crime, right? We weren't shy about carrying out executions, but we also were not nearly as aggressive about it, right, as some societies have been. And even getting into the 1800s, some states, states like Michigan, decided to abolish the death penalty. So already in the 19th century, you see that whether you have the death penalty is actually just a product of what state you live in. And it's not even in the entirety of the US. So there's this ambivalence that I think runs its course through American history. And By the 1960s, the U.S. is pretty much done with the death penalty. It looks like we're going to get rid of it. This is what's happening in Canada, in England, in France, throughout Europe. The death penalty is sort of going the way of the past in much of the Western world. In 1972, what I should back up and say, you know, part of why that happens is after World War II, you know, there's been the the discovery of the Nazi death camps. There's this sense that Vietnam went really horribly and, and that government should be kind of, you know, restrained in their decision-making about taking human life, that we should be really careful as a society about when we
0: do that. And that so, really sets the stage for where you pick up the thread in your Times piece about sort of the, the context that the Supreme Court was looking at in the early 1970s. That's right.
1: So the Supreme Court by the early 70s is a fairly, you know, it's a court in flux. There's liberal members and conservative members, but they are not shy about weighing in on big social issues, right? They're, this is about a year before they're going to rule in Roe versus Wade. And my Times piece, I really wanted the it to speak to this current moment in which we're all talking about, the Supreme Court's exercise of power when it comes to abortion. So in 1972 the a group of civil rights lawyers go to the Supreme Court and try to convince the justices that the death penalty should be abolished that it's time has come and gone and that you know who gets executed in America is a kind of a random unlucky handful of people and to the extent there's any logic to who's getting the death penalty it's you know people who grew up in poverty it's people without money and it's people who are like largely african american. And the death, the Supreme Court in 1972 somewhat shockingly agrees and abolishes the death penalty. What they do is they strike down all the laws on the books in states across the country, but they don't say the death penalty can never come back. They just say the laws you have on the books now are not producing sort of outcomes that make any sense. That's entirely arbitrary. One justice even compares getting the death penalty and being executed to being struck by lightning in terms of just how random and rare that experience is. So our system, it's not so much that they think it's unjust, it's that they think it makes no sense. It's kind of illogical and arbitrary. So, you know, we're we're all very familiar now with the way that the Roe v. Wade decision inaugurated decades of a kind of conservative legal movement to undo the Roe decision and get new justices on the Supreme Court get new judges on the bench you know you know chip away at state laws in the context of the death penalty the backlash is much much faster so 1972 this is an era in which crime is on the rise people generally feel like the Supreme Court and Congress and sort of bureaucrats in Washington have been impinging upon their ability to fight crime there's i in my book, talk about the 1971 movie, Dirty Harry, many people are familiar with where, you know, this, this cop is, he bends the rules of the law, but to, to adjust and he's trying to catch a serial killer. And at one point he has to let this guy go because he's, you know, he sees some evidence without a warrant. And this is an indictment, right. Of, of egghead liberal justices in Washington telling people what to do. And the Supreme court kind of falls into that cultural moment where people say, The Supreme Court can't deprive us of the death penalty. They can't tell us what to do. And and in fact, the death penalty seems like it's a necessary way of fighting crime now that crime is on the rise. And so there's this really fervent backlash. And many, many states go back, including Texas, including Florida, North Carolina, a lot of states in the South, but also Ohio, states across the country. And eventually, New Hampshire also writes a new death penalty law. And they write these laws. And just four years later, in 1976, the Supreme Court... Takes those laws into consideration and says the death penalty can return, right? It doesn't approve every single state law. Some of the state laws they think are a little bit too harsh, but they, at least in 76, approve laws out of Georgia, Texas, and Florida. And that is enough to really bring the death penalty back. It comes raring back into public awareness. And at the end of the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, the number of people who are sentenced to death and who are executed starts to rise as crime is on the rise. As you mentioned, it becomes a key campaign issue. It's really a a subject of political discussion for people. And then beginning around the year 2000, we reach a peak and the numbers start to drop and they've been dropping ever since then. And so my work
0: has largely been around trying to understand
1: the reasons for that rise and fall.
0: Maybe as part of that alchemy of of kind of what went into that rise, could you address a little bit sort of the public opinion aspect of this, because you, you touched a moment ago on sort of the Dirty Harry theory, which is, you know, you, you heard this even in the 2000 presidential campaign. You heard a candidate like Al Gore, a Democrat, say that he supported the death penalty because he believed it provided a deterrent effect, notwithstanding many studies that showed that's not really the case. What was happening with public opinion during this period from the 1970s through the 1980s when we saw this increase in death penalty cases. I think one thing is that people were really concerned about crime.
1: And crime was really on the rise throughout the seventies, eighties, nineties. Since then there's been a decline in in crime and homicide, notwithstanding, you know, some rising homicides in the past few years. In general, there was a rise and fall of of murder and other kinds of rapes, robberies, other kinds of crime. And people were scared and people started to vote in response to crime. And and a lot of politicians on both the right and left, saw a kind of winning campaign issue here, something that they could really gin up. I mean, Bill Clinton in 1992 returned back to Arkansas from the presidential campaign trail in order to preside over an execution so that he could signal to voters that he was tough on crime and serious about crime. Now, The death penalty, we now know, does not have a a measurable deterrent effect on crime. It doesn't stop crime. It costs an incredible amount of money that could be used to try to stop crime. You know, if you took the millions of dollars that go to death penalty cases and put them into housing and poverty and mental health programs, you may actually reduce the amount of crime that way. But of course, the death penalty is this very simple, evocative, culturally powerful idea, right? And the idea that you punish the worst of the worst by killing them, and that this signals to yourselves as a society that that we're really doing something about crime, that was really potent and powerful. And so throughout the early 70s into the 80s, support for the death penalty, as measured by public opinion polls, starts to rise. It gets up into the, into the 60s, I think, or maybe even the 70s. And politicians pick up on this. And of course, there's the really Famous examples, like I mentioned, Bill Clinton or Al Gore or, you know, George W. Bush and Perry ran for president and were asked about the Texas death penalty system and very proudly defended it. Got applause, you know, at, at debates for talking about it. But there's also the like lower level political outcomes. State legislators are campaigning on the death penalty. District attorneys, every county, you know, in the United States for the most part has a district attorney who's making these decisions about the death penalty and is running based on their death penalty decisions. Judges in many states are elected officials. They are where I live in Texas, and they're running campaign ads about how tough they are when it comes to the death penalty. So at all levels of politics, people whether they work in criminal justice directly as, as judges and DAs, or whether it's a little more diffuse, like a governor or a state legislator, they're seeing the death penalty as a winning campaign issue that they can run on. And it becomes this almost like self-fulfilling prophecy or this, this kind of machine that runs itself where people say they want the death penalty, people run, you know, politicians run on it, they get into office, they enact the death penalty more, and then that leads people to feel like they need it. And it's a
0: machine that kind of feeds itself politically. I certainly remember, and we'll have some younger listeners who perhaps don't have this kind of cultural zeitgeist context in mind. But you know, you you referenced Dirty Harry before. I definitely all you need to do is start start scrolling through movies of, of the time, and you really see this this idea. You know, there are there's just a, a bumper crop of, of movies and culture kind of depicting cities out of control, Uh kind of urban cesspools of violence. I mean, there's movies like the warriors about bands of rival street gangs, actually the most dangerous of whom are the baseball furies who put on face paint and run around with baseball bats Mm -hmm. trying to beat people. But you know, there is this dystopian view of what's going on in America. And then you have headlines like Washington DC becomes the murder capital of the world. And there does seem to be a very charged sense at the time of things are out of control. We need to do something and we need to have some measure of societal revenge and retribution. And it was almost like, it doesn't really matter what the science says about it. What matters is we feel like we really need to do something.
1: Yeah, and, and in addition to all those films about urban disarray, there's also the rise of movies about revenge. You know, I mean, there, revenge has always been, of course, a, a plot in in film and, and TV and, and books, but you see, you know... Death Wish. Death Wish, these sort of famous... Dirty Harry is also kind of a revenge movie. You you see people seeking vengeance, and the death penalty, of course, is is presented at the same time in newspapers as society's version of vengeance. And I think one kind of quiet... Thing that's bubbling under the surface of this story is race, right? That that you know, in the in the seventies, there was a very explicit effort, particularly among Republican Party operatives. You know, I think one of them very famously admitted to an interviewed interviewer decades later. You know, we couldn't make it illegal to be black. We couldn't make it illegal to be a hippie, but we wanted to disrupt the left and disrupt the political organizing in these communities, and we wanted to associate those communities with crime, right? And so. It sounds like there weren't really crime in Black communities, but, but there was this general sense that the urban disarray and the crime was related to sort of too many rights being given to Black communities, right? And so the death penalty, in a very complicated way, comes to play a political role for people where it's almost a way of, you know, Dirty Harry wasn't just mad that criminals were getting rights, quote unquote. He was also... I think implicitly a backlash to the civil rights era. The idea that, you know, society was changing too fast. The people who had not had rights before were getting too many rights. And, and that was in people's minds associated also with the kind of libertine attitudes of, of Woodstock. And, and so this, this image of society spinning out of control feeds the image among Americans on the left and the right white and black that the death penalty is a sort of necessary almost like emergency measure right to to try to stem some of this this chaos and and the way that race plays a role in that story is very complex but i want i want to address it because it helps also see the really complicated relationship between the modern death penalty and the death penalty of the past in America, which was very frequently and especially in the South, very much about racial control, right? It was a
0: it was largely, I mean, that's the story of lynching in America, which exactly. is a particular brand of vigilante justice carried out against mostly black men, particularly in the South. And there is an element, what, what's, what's interesting, and you, know, you, I'm sure, could write an entire book about the racial aspects of the death penalty in America, and we can't delve into all of them here, but it is interesting, I alluded earlier to the death penalty being a wedge issue in the 1988 presidential campaign. And of course, that was most famously centered around the Willie Horton ad, which, you know, it was a barely concealed subtext that that was really a story about race and about a black offender committing a heinous crime, and sort of a, a, a tolerance among a you know for, for a certain politician, Michael Dukakis, for allowing that. And if only he had been tougher on crime, if only he had you know had the gumption to follow through with the death penalty, then we we wouldn't have these kinds of problems. What's so interesting about that aspect of it is that I'm going to. I have a perception here that's just my own and could be wrong. And I'd love to, to run it by you, an expert, to, to, to correct it. As I was living through all of this politically in the 1990s, it felt like something began to shift. And maybe it was decreasing crime rates, which, which we did have in the 1990s. Maybe the other thing was another racially loaded event in the cultural zeitgeist which was the OJ Simpson trial, because Mm -hmm. the major thing that seemed to shift to me was stories about exonerations that we began to see on the basis of DNA technology, which first burst into the public consciousness during the OJ trial. And ironically, Barry Sheck, one of OJ's lead attorneys, went on to be a a co-leader of the Innocence Project, which Mm -hmm. was responsible for many of those exonerations. So as I reach back in my own memory, what I what I recall is seeing more and more stories about people who are innocent on death row, and the, and evidence emerging that they were actually innocent, and that beginning to change people's minds. But maybe I'm I'm sort of no, retrofitting. You is have it right. You happen?
1: definitely have it right. I, it, it's it's a tricky thing to get your arms around because I was looking at some public polling recently. In which roughly 50% of Americans still think that the death penalty is just, but, oh, sorry, roughly 70% think we may have executed an innocent person. So people can believe that we've executed someone innocent and still support the death penalty. And so Mm -hmm. it's really tricky to get your arms around how people kind of keep those, both those things in their minds.
0: All right. We have this rising public sentiment of lawlessness, crime. There's a racial aspect to things in the 1970s. People seem to want a death penalty. Majorities of Americans seem to be in favor of a death penalty. And indeed, you see a massive increase in states allowing the death penalty and actual executions. And then things seem to crest and public sentiment begins to shift and the circumstances begin to shift. Now, I just gave you my perception is that some of it was technology-based and exoneration-based, but you say it's a it's a very complicated picture so what is that fuller picture like what do you think began to shift in the
1: 1990s it's a great question and i was really struck by your mention earlier on of o j simpson right which is in the early 90s and i think the o j simpson case obviously a very complicated historical moment but it inserts the idea in many people's minds that the justice system doesn't always get it right right that you know many many americans question whether the outcome of that trial is accurate and of course in that case he was not convicted but you can it doesn't take a great leap to imagine the opposite happening right and then as you get deeper into the 90s there start to be more and more stories of innocent people who are freed from death row because DNA comes back and shows that they are innocent DNA like this did not exist in the same way in the 70s and 80s so it's a new bit of technology that shakes people's faith in the system and it shakes their faith in a deeper ways than just innocence and guilt i mean You may think that someone's guilty, but if you believe that innocent, if you believe that DNA can get things wrong, you're also maybe a little bit more willing to hear that story that circulates, for example, of a defense lawyer who fell asleep in trial, or, you know, a mental illness in the defendant that went undiagnosed. And you maybe are a little bit more willing to be sympathetic and understanding that there's sort of more to the story here than the kind of simple narrative that you initially got of this terrible crime. And, And 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 the idea that the death penalty is the just outcome. So towards the end of the nineties, you do have DNA exonerations. You have Cases that really raise the question of whether someone innocent is about to be executed. And then you have people who are facing the death penalty who really did commit the crime, but who seem to have changed their lives in such a way that it doesn't sort of make intuitive sense to execute them. I'm thinking particularly of like a woman named Carla Faye Tucker, which is a very famous case in Texas across the country. She was executed in 1998. Her crime was horrific. She literally left a pickaxe in one of her victims And yet, by the time of her execution, she had had this incredibly compelling conversion to evangelical Christianity. She went on the 700 Club to talk about her faith, and there was this real sense that she was transformed. And so I actually, for the book, interviewed some of the men who carried out the execution with her, and they were really struggling, even, you know, 20 plus years later, to, to reckon with what the point of the death penalty is if you're executing somebody who is transformed. It's almost like the person you're executing isn't the same person who committed that crime. And so that, I think, also chips away at people's faith in the system. And defense lawyers also kind of get better at utilizing that and going into court at the, at the very beginning and saying, yes, my client committed this horrific crime, but I want to tell you about his mental illness, about the trauma that he experienced as a child, about you know the brain injury that he experienced, all these really horrible things. And juries start to respond to that and say, well, maybe I still believe in the death penalty, but, but not this guy. Maybe this guy is just evoking enough mercy for me that despite his horrific crime, I'm willing to extend some mercy. And of course, if the jury says not that guy enough times over and over, the numbers really start to drop and eventually you kind of don't sentence anyone to death. At the same time as all of this, the Supreme Court is issuing rulings that chip away at the death penalty. They say people who were under the age of 18 when they committed the crime shouldn't be sentenced to death. People with intellectual disabilities shouldn't be sentenced to death. All of this makes the cost of trying to seek the death penalty for somebody much more expensive. So prosecutors say, I still believe in the death penalty, but for this case, it's not worth it. So there's all these reasons that kind of inform one another. And there's a kind of rise of of mercy throughout the system, but also a rise of a sense that this isn't worth it anymore. You know, the public opinion polls may continue to show that the death penalty has supported 50% or greater, but they don't always measure the relevance. And I think that there's people who maybe voted with the death penalty in the front of their mind in the 1990s that by the 2000s are... It's just, it's lowered in relevance. They don't care. They're more concerned about a laundry list of other cultural issues, abortion, climate change, guns, maybe terrorism. The bad guy in their mind is not the serial killer of the 1970s. It's the 9-11 hijacker. Mm. And all of this, I think, sucks, leeches a lot of cultural power and, 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 and the idea that the death penalty is this necessary thing. And we realized that all along, it was more symbolic than it was a real
0: way to deal with the problems in our world. Well, H.L. Mencken said that for any complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. And it sounds like any one clear, simple explanation of what happened and how the worm turned in the 1990s is probably wrong on its own. But it is interesting that you trace all these threads that do weave together into a, into kind of a coherent tapestry there. I can tell you, I mean, the plural of anecdote, I guess, is data, but I can tell you anecdotally that a friend of mine who was a federal prosecutor who had to prosecute some really tough crimes said to me in the 2000s that her experience was the juries because they were beginning to see shows like CSI, and they'd seen the OJ trial, were beginning to expect clear cut DNA evidence in every single case. And if you didn't have that kind of evidence, you weren't going to get a conviction. And that was affecting the kinds of choices that prosecutors were making at the time. The other thing that kind of occurs to me, we were talking earlier about sort of the cultural zeitgeist and movies, you began to see things pop up in the culture, like the movie Dead Man Walking, where Susan Mm -hmm. Sarandon won an Oscar that would have been unthinkable 20 years earlier. You wouldn't seen, you would not have seen that kind of sympathy for a killer on death row that you saw in that movie. And it did seem like there was a new kind of cultural space, I guess, available and maybe it was opened up by the fact that people were feeling less of that pressure of of a crime wave there was a, re, a there was a recession of recession that sounds like an economic phenomenon there there was there was a decline in the murder rate and 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 other violent crimes and maybe that reduce some of the pressure. Regardless, as you say, during the 2000s, we began to see a string of Supreme Court cases that began to hem in the circumstances under which prosecutors could seek the death penalty. And then another interesting thing happened, which is lethal injection came under some duress and pharmaceutical companies got involved. What happened with that?
1: It's a really interesting story because you know it, it it it's like a you know if if this story was the plot of a movie the lethal injection issues would be like the entrance of a surprising character 90 minutes into the movie that you had never seen before and you sort of have to make sense of and what happened was around 2009 2010 activists to oppose the death penalty and it's really notable that they were not lawyers because for the last 30 years before that, because of the Supreme Court's role in all of this, the dominant figures in this story had been lawyers. But around 2009-10, you have these activists, people without law degrees, who realize that one way they can disrupt the death penalty is by trying to make it more difficult for prisons to get the drugs to carry out lethal injections. And they don't do this by really pressuring anyone. They just go to pharmaceutical companies and say, "Hey, are you comfortable with your drugs being used right for, for this?" And the pharmaceutical companies say, "Well, no." And of course, you know, if you're a little more cynical, you might say the companies have a PR interest in this that they don't want to be seen as as sort of handmaidens to the American death penalty. You know, many of these companies are international. The death penalty is relatively unpopular in a lot of the world and is seen as sort of a tool of a kind of American backwardness. And, and so the pharmaceutical companies start instituting controls so that their drugs can't actually get to the prisons. The prisons then go and in some somewhat shocking cases, use cash to buy suitcases of drugs, or they use, I'm sorry, suitcases of cash to buy drugs. You know, from illicit sources, you start to hear about Indian and other companies that try to get the drugs past the FDA into the United States. And it's this Wild West world of of states trying to get these lethal injection drugs. And as a result, you start to see more and more scandals in which the executions are botched. The drugs are not up to the sort of same standards and codes that they were before And states start experimenting with new types of drugs that they didn't use before, and these drugs don't work as well. And you just see a a kind of like a a series of, of horrific botched executions, certainly, the most famous one being in Oklahoma. In 2015, and it leads Obama to call for a review of the death penalty, and it really kind of shakes people's confidence in even if we're getting it right, and the guilty person goes to their their death, do we want to be a society that has people, you know, in excruciating pain on the gurney? And increasingly, you see a lot of people kind of uncomfortable with that.
0: It it was really a, a kind of a it was a fascinating and very disturbing time. And I think that there was sort of this growing consciousness of what is the actual process? And there was a lot of reporting at the time about, well, do you realize what the mechanism here is? And medically, how little is known about what's actually going on, what the actual experience is. And then it leads to these weird changes to state laws to allow firing squads and alternative Mm -hmm. methods of execution. And suddenly, that kind of brings us up to sort of the last couple of years and, and and where we are today. There was a push at the end of former President Trump's term because he took a very simple view of everything. And, and apparently this was like, you know, let's get as many executions as we can because I don't know. And so there was there was a push and and a number of executions were carried through toward the end of his term. Mm-hmm. But by and large, what you document in your book and your article is a very significant decline in the number of executions we're seeing in America. And that leads you to the contention in the title of your times piece, which is Americans may be ending the death penalty kind of in de facto terms themselves. So kind of a two part question here, where are we today and what leads you to conclude that Americans may be sort of bringing an end on their own to the death penalty?
1: Well, the numbers are pretty clear. We sent more than 300 people a year to death row in the in the in the 90s for a few years, and last year we sent fewer than 20 people to death row. Right. Similarly, at one point about a generation ago, we were executing upwards of you know more than 90 people a year, and last year we executed fewer than 20. So, I'm not arguing that the death penalty is going to disappear tomorrow, but I think that all of the reasons for its decline are relatively stable and my sort of not proof but my 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 sense of that was strengthened actually in an ironic way when the trump administration pursued these executions there were 13 executions carried out by the trump administration and yet I did not see Trump get up on stage at a rally and talk about them right he 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 almost even he understood that it wasn't something that was going to gin up the base of his supporters in the way that talking about the Supreme Court and abortion was going to or, 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 or oil prices or whatever else. The, the, the sense of relevance has disappeared. And with all of those executions, you know, in the 1990s, the news coverage of an execution tended to be so-and-so is going to be executed today. Ten years ago, he raped and strangled and murdered this, this person and, you know, left their body here, all the grisly details of the murder that really sort of horrify you. Today, the coverage of the death penalty you see in most mainstream press is all of those details and also his defense lawyers say that he was horrifically abused as a child or his defense lawyers say he's black and he was sentenced by an all white jury in this part of the deep south or, you know, with every case or or his defense lawyers say there are real questions about whether he's even guilty in the first place because they found dna that seems to point to another person you're seeing the narratives that people see in the in the media about death penalty cases have changed a lot and i think that that is inseparable from these declining numbers that there's an ambivalence about it the sense that 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 we should be questioning the death penalty even if we still carry it out in certain cases and and to me it's almost like if if president donald trump could not create a widespread return to the death penalty, it's hard to see what would. Now, I will say that, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, right after my article came out, Oklahoma announced that it would seek to carry out 25 executions over the next two years. Arizona, Texas, a bunch of states are seeking to carry out executions. But even then, the numbers are not signaling a huge jump back. And and I think it's even more impactful when you look at the, what I call sort of the front end of the system, right? The, The question of whether somebody gets sent to death row in the first place, those numbers are still in decline. And all those reasons I described earlier about the cost, about prosecutors having misgivings about you know dna all of those are stable forces that are continuing to drive the number of death sentences down and then just in the past few years new hampshire colorado virginia and other states have abolished the death penalty and virtually no states have you know just out of whole cloth brought back the death penalty so it feels like a kind of one way trend of getting rid of the death penalty even
0: if it's clear that it's going to be with us for a long while it is also interesting that, you know, we kind of started earlier in the conversation talking about the larger cultural and especially political context that all of these trends fit within or maybe spring from. And it's interesting from a from a political standpoint that you mentioned New Hampshire, and obviously our radio broadcast is in New Hampshire. And so our New Hampshire listeners, maybe not so much our national listeners on podcast, but our New Hampshire listeners will be familiar with the former Attorney General for the state who later became a U.S. Senator, Kelly Ayotte. When she was running for the U.S. Senate in 2010, some emails emerged from her, the run-up to her deciding to launch a campaign in which her key political advisor was discussing the fact that she had presided over the lone death penalty prosecution in the state. And it emerged that he said to her that if this arose as a political issue, the question would be, where does Kelly Ayotte stand on the death penalty? By the switch. Meaning that he thought that her being a tough on crime prosecutor who was willing to send someone to death row would be a political asset in that race and in that state. And just a few years later, as you alluded to, New Hampshire got rid of the death penalty. And so that just kind of speaks to the overall political zeitgeist, which is that we seem to have landed at a place where maybe it's about a 50-50 issue in America, but it's not an issue, as you alluded to with Donald Trump a moment ago, where politicians are really seeking to gain advantage, to sort of grandstand on it. it, it it no longer seems to be a political asset or liability for anyone. And maybe that in itself is part of lowering the temperature and kind of accounting for, or maybe it's a chicken egg thing with, with people's waning interest in the issue.
1: Yeah, and I will say that there's going to be some tests over the next couple of years. I mean, I mentioned they're trying to seek executions in Oklahoma and Arizona, and the driving forces in both states are the attorneys general there. It doesn't appear to be helping their political star rise in the way that it did for Bill Clinton in the 80s, but I could be absolutely proven wrong there. I do think, however, that underneath the surface of what people maybe tell a pollster about their support for the death penalty, the ambivalence is real, right? So even if 50% of people still say they support the death penalty, when they go serve on a jury, we're just seeing over and over again, they're not picking the death penalty for that individual person. And I do think that there's a big difference between saying you support the death penalty as a kind of philosophical thing in the abstract and then having like an individual real human life in front of you and having to make that decision and knowing yes this person committed a horrific crime knowing all the details of that crime let's even say for the thought experiment knowing they're definitely guilty but now because defense lawyers have gotten better at investigating and presenting in court the kind of stories of all the traumas that somebody experiences as a child and and also maybe aspects of that that ex- of of those traumas that are on all of us like you know the fact that they at a mental illness that wasn't treated, right? and And it's our public policy that put them in that position. I think people are just a little bit more sort of humble about, frankly, playing God in this particular way. You know, that there's a little bit more of a sense of, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I, when people confront this decision of whether to kill someone. And I think a big part of my reporting and and the book is about trying to pull the death penalty away from this big abstract philosophical question that you can come down one way or another and actually kind of looking at the real system as it exists, the real cases, the the real human lives that that are affected by this policy. Sometimes people are affected by it and still support it. You know, there are certainly victim family members who witness an execution and say it was a positive experience. But a very large number of people also talk about how traumatizing it is to watch an execution, to carry out an execution to have to, you know, serve on a jury that sends someone to their death and feel responsible for that. And I think we as a society have become
0: a little bit more kind of humble and careful in that particular way. Predictions are always fraught. And you were a moment ago, understandably reticent to make a firm one about where all of this is going. But if you were to try to generally guess based on the trajectory today, where we'd be on the death penalty in 2032? Mm -hmm. What would you say? Well, I do think that past
1: can be a prologue, you know, to the future. And if you look at the last 10 years, you've seen this constant drumbeat of death sentences going down, executions going down, and states choosing to abolish the death penalty. I think over the next five to 10 years, we will see a number of other states abolish the death penalty, you know, states where it's not as baked into their cultural view. So not Texas, not Alabama, not Florida, but maybe an Ohio, right? I mean, just a couple of years ago, California Governor Gavin Newsom put a moratorium on executions there and actually Physically dismantled the death chamber. So that executions are that much harder to carry out there. You're gonna see more states do that. So they don't just they don't necessarily abolish it, but they 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 sort of resign it to increasing irrelevance and they keep it on the books, but it becomes almost just a symbolic thing that we say we have, but we never actually carry out. So I think that those are the trends that you'll see. Obviously, the current Supreme Court is extremely conservative and has been extremely in agreement basically with the arguments of states that want to carry out executions. So they've generally been ruling against death row prisoners, not always, but often. And I think you'll keep seeing decisions like that. And so it'll add the pressure for local prosecutors, state legislators, and members of the public to be the ones to really make up their minds about the death penalty. Law professors have told me they think that eventually the Supreme Court will outlaw the death penalty. It's just not this court, right? And I think part of why I wrote this article and part of the timing with this recent Supreme Court term we've seen is, you know, it's a a time in which the Supreme Court is really exerting its power on a whole range of different subjects. But I think the death penalty is the sort of counterintuitive example where the, the, the Supreme Court is saying one thing, but we as a country are, are saying something different. And ultimately what we say goes, right? That we have the power as a, as a society to kind of really make the decisions. And with the death penalty, we're kind of voting with our feet and we're, we're resigning it to history.
0: Well, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating subject and prediction and, and history. And it, it, when you put it in the context of where we've come from and kind of this, this overall building trajectory, that really does make sense. And regardless, thank you so much for, for walking through all of this. It, it really does provide a much deeper understanding of this. Maurice Shamat, thanks so much for being on Great Ideas.
1: Thank you for having me. Really great to be here.